This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A malibu.com, code GLOW. Hello, I'm Mark Riley, And I'm Rob Hughes. And you're listening to the A to Z of David Bowie, the greatest rock and roll star in the world ever, ever. L is for Lulu. Lulu Kennedy Kearns OBE, as she's known now. Born Marie MacDonald McLaughlin Laurie in November 1948. Scottish singer-songwriter, of course. Internationally known, especially in uh, by American audiences, for the song To Sir With Love from the film of the same name uh, with the title song to the James Bond film, The Man With The Golden Gun. Yeah, in European countries, she is widely known for a Eurovision Song Contest winning entry. Boom, banger, bang, Bob. Oh. And in the UK for a 1964 hit, Shout, which was performed at the closing set ceremony at the 2014 Commonwealth Games in Glasgow. She's also quite well known for when she starts to talk about Scotland. She goes a little bit Scottish. She does. Also, she's uh, perhaps lesser known for the song I'm a Tiger, which came out in 1968. as the first record I remember falling in love with because my mum had it and I would just be two years old, Mark. Really? And I loved that tune. I would sing it constantly. And I was doing a bit of uh, research on this before and uh, she said that when she was asked to record that, she actually cried because she wanted to do real serious, deep, dark soul stuff stuff and they were giving us stuff like I'm a tiger there is a cosmic link here mate go on and I am kind of like you know flying in the face here a little bit but that was your first kind of like where your heart went to flutter yeah well I my first crush was with uh, tiger Oh, from, from uh, Double, Double Deckers. Deckers, yeah. So, I mean, wow. there's definitely a bit of a, ti- a tiger thing going on a, here, there's Bob, there's isn't there? symmetry there, definitely. All right. Mm, move on. Yeah, anyway, so Marie MacDonald McLaughlin Laurie was born in Lennoxtown, Stirlingshire, grew up in Denistoon, Glasgow, where she attended Thompson Street Primary School and then Onslow Drive School. And she lived in Gallagate for a bit before moving on to uh, Garfield Street in Denistoon. That's not me doing a Scottish accent. It is Denistoon. <laughs> I was going to say exactly that. So for those out there thinking, hang on, he's gone a bit Lulu here. It is D-E-N-N-I-S-T-O-U-N. Yes, it is. Dennis Toon. <laughs> so at the age of 12 or 13, she and her manager approached a band called the Bell Rock, seating stage experience as a singer. She appeared with them every Saturday night. Alex Thompson, the group's bass player, has reported that even her voice was remarkable at that age. She has two brothers and a sister, and her father was a heavy drinker. Now, I have taken this directly from Wikipedia, Yes. Mate. Okay, so whoever put that in there... 
must do better. It's uh, not very subtle, is it? Not really, no. And it's not very uh, conclusive either, is it? You know, it's no. You know, let's face it. Anyways, I don't think you would want to be defined as a heavy drinker. Definitely not. In August 2017, talking about families, Lulu's family history was the subject of an episode in the uh, TV series Who Do You Think You Are? And the research showed that her mum had been brought up by another family and the investigation into her genealogy showed that Lulu's maternal grandparents had come from across the religious divide in Glasgow. Mm. So her granddad, Hugh, was a Catholic and her grandmother... Helen Kennedy was a Protestant. Hugh Kearns had been a member of a Catholic gang and was found in the research that had been in and out of prison at the time of the birth of Lulu's mum. Right, OK, interesting stuff. Um, so Kennedy was found to be the daughter of a worthy mistress of the Ladies' Orange Lodge 52 oh. and explained why the two families were against the union between Kennedy and Cairns. You can, it's easy to forget uh, how much these things mattered to yeah. those communities, yeah. isn't it? I mean, it was, it just wasn't done, was it? Yeah, so, no, of course yeah, it wasn't. Yeah, much trouble at Mill. OK, so back to her early career then. In 1964, under the wing of Marion Massey, Lulu was signed to Decca Records. Uh, when she was only 15, her version of the Isley Brothers the shout credited to Lulu and the Lovers, L-O-V-V-E-R-S, of course, delivered in that sort of inimitable voice, reached the UK charts, got to number seven. Very good. So Massey guided her career for more than 25 years, for most of which time they were partners in business and Massey's husband, Mark, produced some of Lulu's recordings. After the success of Shout, Lulu's next three singles failed to make an impact on the charts. She released uh, Leave a Little Love in 1965, which returned her to the UK top 10. Her next record, Try to Understand, made the top 30. OK, so over the next few years, her career faltered until she made her acting debut in 1967 into Sir With Love, which starred uh, Sidney Poitier. And amongst the cast there, there was a very young Patricia Routledge, wasn't there? And her uh, her character name was Clinty Clintridge. Is that that film? Yeah. (laughs) Steady. (laughs) And the Mindbenders are on there as well, aren't they? Are they really? Yeah, they are, yeah. Right, okay. I mean, I I saw it, you know, probably in the 70s, but Mm. I haven't got a memory, you know that, Bob. I know that. So anyway, Lulu both acted in the film and sang the title song with which uh, she had a major hit in the US, reaching number one. To Serve With Love became the best-selling single of 1967 in the United States, uh, selling well in excess of a million copies. Wow. So she also had a television series in the late 60s and her pop career thrived in the UK. She also had... Uh, some uh, television interest as well. In the late 60s, Lulu's pop career in the UK thrived and she had several television series of her own. Her first BBC series aired in 1965 on BBC Two where she co-hosted Gadzooks. It's the in crowd. In 1966, she made regular appearances on BBC One, the Scottish pop show Stramash. In 1968, she was given her own BBC One TV series, which ran annually until 1975. This series included music, comedy sketches and appearances by star guests. That was pretty much the kind of uh, the roster for all of those programmes, wasn't it? It was, yeah. Right on mixed bag. So one episode, famous episode from January 1969, is remembered for an unruly live appearance from the Jimi Hendrix experience. This is really famous, isn't it? So during the appearance, after playing about two minutes of Hey Joe, Jimi Hendrix stopped and announced, we'd like to stop playing this rubbish and dedicate a song to Cream, regardless of what kind of group they may be in, dedicated to Eric Clapton, Ginger Baker and Jack Bruce. Hendrix and his band then broke into Sunshine of Your Love. It's a great moment, it is, it? it is. It gave him some problems, didn't it, further down the line, Hendrix, but it didn't bother him. No, not at all. So the studio director signalled for Hendrix to stop, but he just carried on. Hendrix was told he would never work at the BBC again, but he was unrepentant nonetheless. He told his girlfriend, Cathy Etchingham, I'm not going to sing with Lulu. I'd look ridiculous. Ouch. Mm. OK, so she also got involved in the Eurovision song 
Song Contest on the 29th of March 1969. She represented the United Kingdom in the Eurovision Song Contest, performing Boom Bang a Bang, written by Peter Warren and Alan Morehouse, and the song was chosen from a selection of six by viewers on a BBC One uh, happening for Lulu a TV show. Okay, and it was hosted by Michael Aspel, in which she performed all six, one after the other. One song, I Can't Go On, written by Elton John and Bernie Taupin, this is great, wow. came last in the postcard vote, but was later recorded by Cilla Black, Sandy Shaw, Polly Brown, who's Polly Brown, and Elton John himself, as well as by Lulu. Oh, there you go. Everything takes time, doesn't it, to come through? Yeah. From the 30th of June to the 2nd of July, 67, Lulu appeared with the monkeys at the Empire Pool in Wembley and a brief romance with Davy Jones. Not to be confused with David Bowie, of course. No. Here, right? Davy Jones of the monkeys during a concert tour of the US in March 68 received a lot of publicity in the UK press. Lulu described her relationship with Jones, said uh, he was a kind of boyfriend, but it was very innocent. Nothing untoward happened. It faded almost as soon as it had blossomed. I could cry. So Lulu began 1970 by appearing on the BBC's highly rated review of the 1960s music scene, Pop Go the 60s. And in 1974, she performed the title song for the James Bond film, The Man with the Golden Gun. All right, so enter David Bowie now, eh, do you think? Hooray! OK, so uh, this is a, an interesting aside. Bowie first met Lulu on the 13th of February, 1970, OK? It was a lunchtime award ceremony for Disc and Music Echo. It was a reader's poll presented by Tony Blackburn at the Café Royale, and they had the photographs taken together, also in the company of Cliff Richard. And Bowie was to go on to say, not very generously, mm. I wasn't pleased to meet Cliff. I was never a great fan of his. Right. <laughs> Which didn't need to be said, really, but uh, no mention of Lulu at all that I could find oh, okay. uh, but of course it was in the same venue that they would be seen hanging out three years later after Ziggy's last stand yeah indeed in the after show okay so before that 16th of October now 1972 Bowie and Iggy Pop are mixing the Iggy and the Stooges album Raw Power at Western Sound Studios in LA and Lulu happened to be working there at the same time she ran in uh, to the wrong studio and found the pair at work she said David was, as he can be, incredibly charming and very British. And Iggy Pop was very forbidding, very dark and sinister looking. I thought, ooh, better get out of here quick. Probably a good idea. The same year she covered David Bowie songs of Man Who Sold the World and Watch That Man. Bowie and Mick Ronson produced the recordings. Bowie played saxophone and provided backup vocals. And rumours of a brief affair were confirmed in her 2002 autobiography. Ooh, now The Man Who Sold the World became a first top ten hit in five years. Uh, it's peaked at number three in the UK in February 74 and was a top ten hit in several European countries. Now then, talking about her affair with Bowie, uh, this is from a, a YouTube interview in 2017, a Feeney 2017 interview. The pair met in a Sheffield hotel lobby on the 6th of June 1973. He asked her if she'd like to come to the show that night. She went to the show and the after show party. Apparently he said to her, I want to record you. I'm going to make a big hit record record with you. Uh, Lulu said later, I didn't think it would happen, but Bowie followed up two days later. He was uber cool at the time and I just wanted to be led by him. I loved everything he did. Now then, Mark, these quotes are actually from my interview with Lulu. So there. Go on then. As is the next one, actually. Okie dokie. Well, uh, this is what she said. I didn't think The Man Who Sold The World was the greatest song for my voice, but it was such a strong song in itself. I had no idea what it was about. In the studio, Bowie kept telling me to smoke more cigarettes to give my voice a certain quality. What, like Phyllis Pierce from Coronation <laughs> Street? Is that, is that what he was going for? Oh, David. No. Uh, Lulu went on to say he invited me to the Chateau d'Eraville where he was recording his pin-ups album, and I'm thinking, oh, am I going to be able to step up to this because this isn't really me? David Bowie isn't my style, but I'd love to sing something different, something challenging. And he said to me, I don't want you to sing the way you normally sing. And he wanted us to sing it with a bit of strut and swagger. 
Uh, she said, the whole time I was very nervous. And there is an outtake from uh, the recording as well where Bowie says at the end, play it with a little more guts, chick. It's too relaxed. Let's hit it as a single, not as an album track. All right? Which is just great production advice, isn't it? It is. It and re- and she, does, she does sing on that particular tune like she's never sung before, doesn't she? Oh, so- yeah. It is terrific. As I say, I did talk to Lulu. This was before her autobiography came out and it wasn't entirely sure whether her and Bowie had had a bit of a dalliance you know what I mean? Yeah. So she was very coy about all that, but she was happy to talk about a lot of stuff. And she said, um, uh, I don't think The Man Who Sold The World was a greater song for my voice, but it was such a strong song uh, in itself. And then that stuff about Bowie telling her to smoke some uh, cigarettes and all the rest. He wanted to make me different somehow. We were like the odd couple. A lot of people had raised eyebrows, but it came down to mutual respect. It was a terrific experience because I flipped when I heard Hunky Dory. Were we ever an item? I'd rather not answer that one. Thanks. Did go on to say, though, she said, for the video, people thought he he came up with the androgynous look, but that was all mine. It was very Berlin cabaret. Bowie himself was a very interesting character because he had the androgynous look, but with a deep Cockney accent. It wasn't exactly macho, but it was very male. Uh, She said also, we did a few other songs too, like Watch That Man, Can You Hear Me, and Dodo. I think Bowie might have written Can You Hear Me for me. I'd gone over to New York when he was recording Young Americans, but it all kind of fizzled out when Bowie split with his manager, Tony DeFries. Wow, I've never heard that before. Wow, that's really interesting. Okay, and so, uh, well, the record itself, uh, The Man Who Sold The World and the uh, B-side of it being Watch That Man, recorded in July 1973, releasing it in the uh, 11th of January 1974. So it included Bowie on guitar, sax and backing vocals. Yeah, Mick Ronson, of course, on guitar. Trevor Boulder on bass. Mike Garson on piano. And Ainsley Dunbar on drums. So it's it's a pin-ups lineup, isn't it? It is. And I like it. I mean, you know, I, I think that's a good version of it. I'm not so keen on Watch That Man. That's a bit ragged. The A to Z of David Bowie with Rob Hughes and Mark Riley. L is for Live Aid, which, as we know, was a dual venue benefit concert held on the 13th of July, 1985, and an ongoing music-based fundraising initiative. So the original event was organised by Bob Geldof and Midjor to raise funds for relief for the ongoing Ethiopian famine. So billed as a global jukebox, the event was held simultaneously at Wembley Stadium in London, attended by 72,000 people, and John F. Kennedy Stadium in Philadelphia, attended by about 100,000 people. Yeah, on the same day, concerts inspired by the initiative happened in other countries, such as the Soviet Union, Canada, Japan, Yugoslavia, Austria, Australia and West Germany. It's one of the largest scale satellite link-ups and TV broadcasts of all time. An estimated global audience of 1.9 billion across 150 nations watch the live broadcast, which is well, it's mind-blowing, isn't it, that figure? It is a bit, yeah. So among those involved in organising the whole show was Harvey Goldsmith, who was responsible for Wembley, and Bill Graham, who put together the American leg. So they were both... I mean, Harvey Goldsmith did all the work with Bowie anyway, yeah, didn't he? Yeah. He put the tours together, and Bill Graham was just the go-to man in America, wasn't he? Absolutely. So we get on to uh, Bowie's appearance here. I mean, he did... Well, he ended up doing four tunes, didn't he? Starting off with TVC 1-5. Yeah, Rebel Rebel. Modern Love. And Heroes. And then he was supposed to have done five years which he dropped, as explained here. Yeah, so later in the evening, following David Bowie's set, a video shot by the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation was shown to the audiences in London and Philadelphia, as well as on televisions around the world, though neither US feed chose to show the film, showing starving and diseased Ethiopian children set to drive by the cars. Just one of the most memorable yeah. moments of the 80s, wasn't it, by, yeah. uh, by a long chalk, yeah. Uh, this would also be shown at the London Live 8 concert in 2005. Heartbreaking stuff. 
Yeah, and the rate of giving became faster in the immediate aftermath of the video. Bob Geldof had previously refused to allow the video to be shown due to time constraints and had only relented when Bowie offered to drop five years from his set as a bit of a trade-off. Yeah, I mean, it is strange, isn't it? Because, I mean, it was so... I don't know I don't know if Bob Geldof maybe thought that it was just a little bit too powerful, you know, Possibly. because, uh, I mean, it, it was an entertainment. The whole thing was for entertainment with a good cause, yeah. a very good cause. Uh, but it, it was so powerful that it, I think... Uh, Anybody who watched it at the time would have been in tears, wouldn't they? Yeah, of course. But anyway, uh, so this is from Rolling Stone magazine. When David Bowie agreed to perform at Live Aid at London's Wembley Stadium, he had a grand vision of duetting with Mick Jagger via satellite at Philadelphia's JFK Stadium for a cover of Martha and the Mandela's Dancing in the Street. Those plans quickly fell apart when the musicians learned they'd have to deal with a significant video delay. So they opted instead to record a studio version of the song and shoot a music video, all in a single chaotic day in June. OK, so that left Bowie's performance at the Two Continent concert against Hunger. He hadn't promoted uh, his 1984 album Tonight with a Tour, so Live Aid marked Bowie's first performance since the end of the Serious Moonlight Tour over a year and a half earlier, and he had the unenviable task of following Queen, but when he burst onto the stage at Wembley in his young American suit, it was clear he was more than up for the challenge. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> Queen were just uh, absolutely massive, anyway. They were. were to get bigger. So the show could have been a rare opportunity to actually play under pressure with Queen, but sadly, it didn't happen. Yeah, it's always been hard to uh, ascertain what the relationship was between Bowie and Freddie Mercury. Mm. You, you have to wonder whether there was a lot of rivalry there. You can imagine, can't you, really? Yes. I mean, Bowie used to go and buy stuff off Freddie Mercury at Portobello Market, oh, didn't he? Did. he? Yeah, he had a store there, didn't he? For so he would have been well aware of him. But anyway, um, and uh, it, this is this is just something taken from the same article. The Live Aid set was arguably Bowie's last triumph of the 80s. Well, you know, we will get onto this, of course, in N, but his 1987 album, Never Let Me Down, was shredded by the critics and the supporting Glass Spider tour was largely panned as well. But as approximately two billion people sang along to Heroes during his Live Aid set, he still seemed like one of the biggest, most vital rock stars in the world. That's because he was, because you have to remember, even uh, when it came to Never Let Me Down, that sold a lot of copies just off Bowie's name. It did. And, you know, I mean, that is a funny thing, actually. I mean, and it has been mentioned before, but both U2 and Queen really, really benefited from uh, the exposure that they got on that day. Not in a cynical way. I'm sure yeah. they just did it for all the right reasons. But they were right at the top of the game. Mm. Whereas, in truth, Bowie wasn't really. I mean, that wasn't the greatest period of his uh, career, as we know. So if it had been a little bit earlier and, and Let's Dance had been the hit album of the time, then Lord knows how much it would have pushed that album on even further. And it, and it was a global smash anyway. But that's really what cemented both U2 and Queen as, as just real big hitters. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. The A to Z of David Bowie with Mark Riley and Rob Hughes. L is for Pierre Laroche. Okay, so not to be confused with lucky Pierre Laroche, the ice hockey fella, okay? And I know you were going to get him confused. I've seen <laughs> all your notes down there, Bob, about oh. that ice hockey fella, which is just quite patently wrong. Oh, I thought he was a makeup artist as well, Mark. Well, oh. no. So he was raised in Algiers, and his work was heavily influenced by the Arab women that surrounded him. You know, all of the black eye makeup yeah. that they would wear. That, that, that kind of made a big impression on him. It um, did. That was like the... Well, it was coal, wasn't it? K-O-H-L. Yeah. Called it, like traditional eyeshadow. So he moved to London. He got a job with Elizabeth Arden. I think he was there for about five years, I believe. But he, in the end, he found the work too conservative for yeah. his own tastes. He needed to move on. Now, this is a little bit kind of nebulous, you know. Uh, mm. So I'm doing the research for this uh, in Any Day Now, the much-mentioned uh, uh, book in this particular podcast. Uh, it says that David Bowie was introduced by Brian Duffy to Pierre Laroche in January 1973. Now, that book has got hardly any mistakes yes. in it. I'm sure it's got a couple, but there are also different um, uh, parts of the internet that say that he, he met in late 1972. But on the Ziggy tour, hmm. there's no doubt about it, the wardrobe, makeup and hair was all Susie Fussy, wasn't oh, it? Oh, yeah, without a doubt. So yeah. she wouldn't have done that. It seems that, no. and we've discussed at length, haven't we, the Aladdin Sane cover, which yes. we know he was responsible for the flash itself. And yeah. the flash being uh, lipstick, wasn't it? The, uh, the, the main part That's of it. right, yeah. And also he did the famous golden orb, didn't he, on Bowie's forehead. He did, and uh, yeah, he did the staggering work on Bowie's face on oh. the Life on Mars video with the blue eyeshadow that matches the, the, the suit. Yeah, and same thing went for the pinups cover. Pierre Laroche did say about Bowie, he said he just he was just the perfect guy to work on, really. He said he had the perfect face for makeup, you know, the even features, high cheekbones, and he said he had a very good mouth. It's a pity he didn't get a chance to work on me, to be honest, but he didn't. Anyway, oh. uh, he, he did, however, just rather disappointingly for him, uh, go on to work with Roxy Music and The Stones in 1975, particularly with Mick Jagger. Well, I think, wasn't he uh, Mick's personal makeup man on that tour? <laughs> he was. I don't think he did much work on Keith, although that probably would have required a trowel. Oh, mate. Oh. <laughs> well, he's, he, looked, he looked pretty weathered, didn't he, in that, that particular state? Well, he still does, well, I suppose. Even in 75, yeah. Yeah, okay. but he also did the makeup for Hall & Oates on the cover of their album, which is known as the Silver Album, yes. where they're famously... It looks like they're airbrushed, actually. <laughs> he also did the makeup for Tim Curry, I think, on Rocky Horror Picture Show as well, didn't he? He did, and he passed away in uh, Paris, actually, in 1991 uh, for uh, AIDS-related uh, complications. The A to Z of David Bowie with Rob Hughes and Mark Riley. L is for Labyrinth. All right, so as we know, you know, Bowie was trying to get into movies in a big way in the mid-1980s. I didn't realise this until I started doing some research. Having turned down the baddie role in the 1985 James Bond film, A View to a Kill. So this was uh, the Zorin role that Christopher Walken got, wasn't it, in the end? Is that right? Yeah. Okay, I didn't know that either. Uh, and he'd also done a cameo in John Landis' film Into the Night. And a year later, he starred in Absolute Beginners. And a bigger role, certainly, in Labyrinth. Now, cards on the table here, Bob, and I've never, I've never seen Labyrinth. 
Oh, I, I know. Can't I can't believe you said that, Mark. I know. I have watched the trailer for it. Oh, that's so good of you. <laughs> Thanks so much for going to the, make all that effort. So, I, I mean, this is as much of an education to me as anybody else who's never seen it. But there you go. I mean, I, I was an adult when it was released. Well, you so know. was I. No, no, Bob. <laughs> Mentally, you were obviously still uh, probably an eight, a nine-year-old. Yeah, but... I, I don't like the way this is going. <laughs> <laughs> no, nor do I. So, Labyrinth is a musical fantasy film, is it? Directed by Jim Henson and executive produced by George Lucas, so the heavyweights are in there. Oh, yeah. It started as a collaboration between Henson and designer Brian Froud, who'd previously worked together on the 1982 film The Dark Crystal, which, Bob, I've not seen either. I haven't seen that either, I'll admit it. Terry Jones, though, of Monty Python fame, wrote the first draft of the film's script early in 1984, drawing on Froud's sketches for inspiration. With the exception of Jennifer Connolly, who was Bowie's co-star, and Bowie, most of the film's major characters are played by puppets, created by Jim Henson's Creature Shop. Jim Henson, of course, famous for the Muppets, amongst other things. The plot, 15-year-old Sarah Williams, played by Connolly, is babysitting her infant brother, Toby, who ends up being snatched away by the Goblin King, Jareth a character in the play she is rehearsing. David Bowie plays Jareth. She then has to enter Jareth's kingdom to get her brother back with only 13 hours before Toby is turned into a goblin forever. She's helped by various weird and wonderful creatures along the way, including a dwarfish creature named Hoggle, a talking worm, a big beast called Ludo, and some other beings with detachable body parts. You don't know what you're missing here, mate. Uh, well, I think I need to uh, investigate, to be honest. So Bowie, forward slash Jareth, is watching her progress along the way through the crystal ball and is setting various riddles and traps. They finally make it to Jareth's castle, where Sarah tells him, you have no power over me. Jareth then drops her and her brother off at home, turns into a barn owl and flies off. Sorry, spoiler alert. Oh, that's it. It is, yeah, we needed to put a spoiler <laughs> alert out there, mate, before we do it, not afterwards. So you've seen the pictures though, haven't you? Because Bowie is, uh, looks slightly scary in a very, very 1980s way here. So yeah, of course I have, yeah. A bit of a Tina Turner kind of fright wig, uh, tights, <laughs> loads of mascara, <laughs> eyebrows like Spock from Star Trek, and loads of this sort of flouncy, frilly shirts. I thought that was Tina Turner that, <laughs> oh, that he did oh, to night with but no it was uh, right okay now, I just, can I just say there is, so the reason I'm familiar with this is because uh, my niece Charlotte when she was really young I absolutely loved that film so I just watch it more or less every week with her and then uh, our kids loved it as well so there it's a shame really because I mean if only David Bowie had agreed to take part in Dumb and Dumber then I would have I would have known it like the back of my hand. I could have given you the lines that he would have oh, said in it, yeah. you know. But I don't mean as either Lloyd or Harry, obviously. Oh, I was going to say, if you'd had a haircut like Jim Carrey, that would have been fantastic. Maybe he could have been Seabass. Possibly. <laughs> Kick his ass, Seabass. <laughs> anyway, uh, so Terry Jones had originally intended for the audience not to see the centre of the labyrinth prior to Sarah getting there. But Bowie's involvement in the project resulted in Jim Henson wanting Jareth to sing and appear throughout the film. So you get the money's worth out of Bowie, obviously. Of course. So Jones thought this was a wrong decision, but rewrote the script to allow for songs to be performed throughout the film. The redrafted script was sent to Bowie, who found that it lacked humour and considered withdrawing altogether as a result. Ooh. So Bowie wielded power here, didn't he? He did. Uh, to, to ensure that Bowie stayed on board, Henson asked Jones to do a bit more to the script in order to make it a bit more comical. You have to wonder if uh, Terry Jones was kind of sabotaging it a little bit because he didn't agree with it. Maybe. Or maybe it was just because his heart wasn't particularly in that uh, change. But anyway, Henson originally thought of Jareth as a puppet creature but changed his mind and decided he wanted a charismatic pop star to play the Goblin King instead. For some reason, he thought of Sting. 
Leave it, Bob. Uh, <laughs> Prince, Mick Jagger and Michael Jackson were considered for the role, but apparently, obviously, uh, David Bowie ultimately got the nod. Of course he did. I can't imagine Mick Jagger in that role either. Not but really. Or Michael of... Jackson. No. Uh, Henson said that, uh, and he quotes here, David was our first choice from the very beginning and that the whole thing was written with him in mind. He went on to say, I wanted to put two characters of flesh and bone in the middle of all these artificial creatures and David Bowie embodies a certain maturity with his sexuality, his disturbing aspect, all sorts of things that characterise the adult world. And Bowie and Henson met up in the States in 1983 uh, during the serious Moonlight tour, after which the director kept sending him revised drafts of the script. So he really wanted him. You know, he, uh, probably at Bowie's busiest time for many, many years, he was right there trying to get his, get his oar in. Well, it was his busiest time and he was more popular than ever. So, mm. uh, yeah, you can understand why. So in uh, June 1984, Henson showed Bowie the Dark Crystal and a selection of concept drawings to keep his interest going. Bowie formally agreed to take the role in February 1985, a few months before filming began. Bowie explained, I'd always wanted to be involved in the music writing aspect of a movie that would appeal to children of all ages as well as everybody else. And I must say that Jim gave me a completely free hand with it. The script itself was terribly amusing without being vicious or spiteful or bloody. And it had a lot more heart in it than many other special effects movies. So I was pretty hooked from the beginning. So the soundtrack features a score by Trevor Jones split into six tracks. Bowie recorded five songs for the film, Underground, Magic Dance, Chilly Down, As the World Falls Down and Within You. All right, Bowie and producer Arif Mardin recorded Underground, released as a single at Atlantic Studios in New York, and the track included a chorus of backing vocalists, including Chaka Khan, Sissy Houston and Luther Vandross. Wow. So a link back to Young Americans, along with the blues guitarist Albert Collins. So, I mean, like I say, I don't know that I don't know anything about this, really, apart from the trailer and, and, and some of the songs that I've heard, you know, over the years that right. Bowie did from it. But I, um, I just watching the trailer before, it, it struck me that there's a, a section of Bowie singing on there. And, uh, do you know, when people do that awful Davy Bowie impersonation. It's almost yes. like that's as close as they ever get to actually nailing it, the way that Davy performs in Labyrinth, you yeah, know? Yeah, almost a self-parody. Yeah, yeah, it really is. But anyway, Bowie wasn't enamoured of the accompanying video, though, which featured puppet characters from the film. He said later, I found that the videos I put into other people's hands have always been a mistake. Because of my lack of interest, I didn't get that involved with things like Underground, which I did for Labyrinth. I just left it up, and the result was just not my kind of video. I was a bit lax there. I didn't feel involved. Well, only yourself to blame. Uh, the film wasn't a box office success. By the end of its run in the States, it had grossed $12 million, only half of its $25 million budget. Uh, Bowie's performance divided critics. One critic likened his character to a kabuki sorcerer who offers his ravishing young antagonist the gilded perks of adult servitude. Really? Uh, this is a weird one. The St. Petersburg Times, by contrast, wrote that Bowie foregoes acting, preferring to prance around his lair while staring solemnly into the camera. It's not exactly wooden. Plastic might be a more accurate description. Ooh. Ouch! What? And Melody Maker chimed in with Eye of Newt and Tongue of Mole. David Bowie has become a troll. I was actually thinking they're going to go and watch this, Bob, but there's no point now, is there? The A to Z of David Bowie with Rob Hughes and Mark Riley. L is for Lazarus. Okay, so we know that we've already covered the song Lazarus, haven't we, on Black Star when we did B, which was the last single released before uh, Bowie's death on the 10th of January 2016. Incidentally, Lazarus was Bowie's first top 40 hit in America for uh, nearly 30 years, wasn't it? Mm, it was, yeah. So on the 17th of December 2015, Michael C. Hall appeared on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert singing Lazarus to promote both the singles release and the off-Broadway musical Running in Manhattan, in which he starred. So the musical was based on music and lyrics by Bowie and a book written 
written by uh, Enda Walsh, who's the Irish playwright. First performed at the end of 2015, it was one of the last works that Bowie had completed, inspired by Walter Tevis's novel, The Man Who Fell to Earth. And of course, Bowie took the title role in the uh, film adaptation. He did. So Lazarus was staged for a limited run at New York Theatre Workshop and directed by Ivo Van Hove. And true to Bowie's approach to Black Star, production of the musical was mostly kept secret until its first preview in November 2015. It opened a month later and ran until the end of January 2016. Tickets for the entire run sold out within hours. Yeah, so a quick look at the cast or the major players in the cast here. You've got Michael C. Hall as Thomas Jerome Newton. Kristin Milotti as Newton's assistant, Ellie. Sophia Ann Caruso as Newton's muse. Michael Esper as Valentine. And Alan Cumming as the girl's killer. So Bowie's last public appearance was at the opening night of the production on the 7th of December 2015. New York City's mayor declared the final day of the play's run, which was the 20th of January 2016, as uh, David Bowie Day. Okay, so the New York Times wrote, Ice bolts of ecstasy shook like novas through the fabulous muddle and murk of Lazarus, the great-sounding, great-looking and mind-numbing new musical built around songs by David Bowie. Ice bolts of ecstasy. I know. Rolling Stone called the musical a surrealist tour de force and theatre at its finest. A London production of Lazarus ran at the King's Cross Theatre from the 8th of November 2016 to the 22nd of January 2017 with Michael C. Hall still in the leading role and Ivo Van Hove returning as director. I do know the answer to this question, mate. Yeah, so uh, did you see this? I didn't see it. No, me neither. No, I mean, he he went to London and he didn't come to Manchester. No, he didn't. I mean, so, you know. (laughs) Exactly, you know. Anyway, critics were less kind towards the London production. The Times, for example, dismissed it as pretentious rubbish and nonsense on stilts. The Telegraph said of the plot, it's hard to engage head or heart when there's so much enigma. Other productions of Lazarus followed in Dusseldorf and Vienna and further productions are planned for Linz, Bremen and Amsterdam. A variety of songs in there, one that obviously from, called from across Bowie's career. Yeah. Lazarus being the obvious one. It's No Game Part 1. This Is Not America. The Man Who Sold The World. No Plan. Love Is Lost. Changes. Where Are We Now. Absolute Beginners. Dirty Boys. Killing A Little Time. Life On Mars. All The Young Dudes. Sound and Vision. Always Crashing In The Same Car. Valentine's Day. When I Met You. And Heroes, almost inevitably. Of course. So we come to the recording now. The original cast recording of Lazarus was released in October 2016, produced by David Bowie and Henry Hay. And the album features three previously unreleased tunes from Bowie, amongst the last he recorded prior to his death, uh, with the aforementioned No Plan, Killing a Little Time and When I Met You. So the album was scheduled to be recorded on the 11th of January 2016, which turned out to be the day after Bowie's death. Okay, so the musicians and cast were told upon arriving at the studio. So that must have been, uh, that must have been just impossible, actually, to get through that, really. Absolutely. The A to Z of David Bowie was written and presented by Rob Hughes and Mark Riley, recorded and edited by Howard Nock, with social media graphics by Jason Reed. If you'd like to review or rate this podcast, well, that would be much appreciated. In the next episode... The Man Who Sold The World... Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. 
quince.com slash style. 